ladies and gentlemen. Hello, everyone. Welcome. That's right. To yet another edition of Not Safe for Wonks. And this is going to be a very special episode. They're all very special, but this one especially. Of course. Yes, we've all been very excited for this one. Probably the most excited we've been for any episode so far. Yeah, yeah, this has been weeks in the making. I was very excited to talk about video games, but okay, this one's pretty big too. For those of you who don't know us well, I'm Kennedy Cooper. Leia Rose. I am Brandon Buchanan. And we're Not Safe for Wonks. We're a political podcast that tries to talk about the reasons why people make political decisions and beyond just dry kind of policy proposals and um, individual candidates doing this or that, you know, big picture stuff. Right. Uh, We try to focus on the emotional decisions why people make political choices. And when we talk about political choices, I think that a lot of political choices that were considered beyond the pale by the media establishment just four or five years ago have become mandatory for a large proportion of the electorate. And if you want Mm -hmm. to understand how that came to be or why that's happening, I think it's important to look at the activist left because a lot of the ideas that are now considered mandatory listening started there and started from grassroots demands. And so if we're talking about proposals that have the potential to change lots of lives in this country, like the Green New Deal, I think it's a good idea to talk to the guy who is pretty much considered to be the author of the Green New Deal, mm-hmm. which is why we have Green Party candidate Howie Hawkins here today. Indeed. I feel like this is going to be a really kind of interesting conversation, a really good conversation. We're going to get a lot out of this. Not just like for an understanding of how we got here to this point in terms of organizing on the ground, but what policies you may be looking at four years from now that are considered too radical or off the board that are being organized for right now. And uh, we're hoping that Mr. Hawkins will make the case for some of those policies and that you may be encouraged if they're policies that you support to start talking about them with your friends and start laying that groundwork and being on the leading edge, you know? Yeah, because the, you know, the, the current slate of stuff that the Democratic Party, the left wing of the Democratic Party is pushing for is great. But, you know, there's definitely a lot of uh, d- still leftward that we could move. And yeah, today we're going to be talking to somebody that's really on the frontiers trying to push politics leftward. Also, I think it's it's worth always looking at this stuff because I think ultimately most of us who identify relatively on the left, especially, we like the idea, this dream in our mind of the day that we no longer have to just bow to the two-party system. And we certainly can't get there without supporting people like this and ideas like this. Howie Hawkins, retired teamster from, uh, I believe, Syracuse, New York. Mm-hmm. And we're talking like real working class cred. This dude worked about 20 years for UPS, not management, my guys, like literally unloading boxes and shit. The real work. He's currently living off a $1,200 a month pension. He lives in New York and he's living off $1,200, y'all. He should probably get into the podcast game. He'd be better at it than us. (laughs) He's a white guy who has politics in New York. He's, He's a perfect fit. That's true. The scene is apparently very open for him. He also, uh, he served in the Marine Corps. He studied at Dartmouth College. He was against the war, but his number was called, so he served. Yeah, he's been a a campaigner for a lot of leftist issues for basically his whole life. And in 1984, he helped start the Green Party. So Mm -hmm. he was there at the origin of a lot of these ideas, and he's been basically working for them ever since. So we're very thrilled to have Howie on today and to discuss all of this with him and a lot more. 
He's run for office 24 times and has not won a single time. But I think that shows commitment. Yeah, he's been driving that conversation. And if you haven't heard of this guy, despite him having such an instrumental role, it's because like he's been working at his job and has also obviously been working in local politics in his state. So he has not like had that national profile of a Jill Stein or Cynthia McKinney. So this is his first national run, to my knowledge. And we'll be sitting down and talking to him about that in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. And here we go. Mr. Hawkins? Yeah. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome. Thank you. Seriously. This is amazing. Well, it's, I'm glad to be here. I was busy working away and suddenly realized that uh, it was past five o'clock. So my apologies. No, no, it's it's totally it's 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 100% fine. Yes, we yeah, all all is well. So no worries about being a little late. And uh, yeah, you're here now. It's all that matters. So uh, I'm Kennedy. I'm Leia. Yep, I'm I'm Leia. Our other hosts here. I'm Brandon. I'm the third host. You'll hear me a little bit. And then the other two people in the call with us are just our podcast kind of helping crew. People, family, mm-hmm. Ren being our editor and Dre being our sometimes fourth host and researcher. So they're just here to kind of listen along a little bit. And uh, yeah. So with all that being said, do you want to are you are you ready to hop into the interview? Yeah, sure. Great. Fantastic. Fantastic. Ken, you want to you want to lead us? Yeah. So Howie Hawkins, thank you so much for joining us here on Not Safe for Wonks today. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've been very excited to have you. Something that we talk about a lot here on our podcast is that a lot of the progressive ideas that eventually become mainstream start somewhere in a further left organization. And we see that with the Green Party right now, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. Everybody's talking about the Green New Deal. I was the first candidate to run on it in 2010, running for governor of New York. And it's been the signature issue of the Green Party for the last decade. Jill Stein ran for president on that theme twice. And uh, we're delighted it's got to the national spotlight. The problem is they took the brand and diluted a lot of the content. Mm -hmm. And so you're running on the Green New Deal again for this cycle, correct? That's correct. So you've run for politics quite a bit already. And uh, is this your first time taking a shot at the presidency? Yeah, I wasn't even planning on doing it, but a lot of people asked me to run and they put together a campaign and it was hard to say no. Mm -hmm. I'm now retired from uh, punching a time clock every night at UPS as a Teamster. So I don't have that excuse. (laughs) I've actually been on the ballot as a stand-in or on a petition as a stand-in for Ralph Nader going back years ago. And I actually ended up stuck on the ballot as a vice presidential candidate in Minnesota 2016 because of technicalities. We couldn't substitute Mm -hmm. Ajamu Baraka. My name was on the petition and we couldn't get Mm -hmm. him substituted. But that's, that's technically I was on the ballot. I wasn't really running. Just to kind of get into the meat of things, uh, you mentioned that sort of the Democrats have taken the brand name of the Green New Deal and have kind of run with it, but have stripped out stripped out some of the content. Now that uh, the left of the Democratic Party is is moving more well left, what do you think the Green Party is offering that's different from like the Justice Democrats or the uh, Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren or what have you? Well, to take the Green New Deal, I mean, the, the cutting edge demand right now for the climate movement is the ban fracking and all new fossil fuel infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And that was dropped from the both the select committee for a Green New Deal and then the non-binding resolution for a Green New Deal. You know, it's not correct to say the Democrats have picked it up. Uh, AOC, Ed Markey, the left wing of the Democrats picked it up, but they were defeated by Pelosi and Schumer. 
Pelosi mm-hmm. never brought the non-binding resolution to the floor for a vote. And McConnell said, okay, you can vote on it. And all the Democrats voted present, except for it and voted against it. So it's been defeated by the Democratic establishment within the Democratic Party. But yes. another important dilution of the deal is that they extended the deadline for zero greenhouse gas emissions and 100% clean energy to 2050. They only say we can we should get electric power production to 100% clean energy by uh, 2030. But that's only 28% of the nation's carbon footprint. It's mm-hmm. not what you need to do to, to address climate change. They say nothing about no more nuclear power, mm-hmm. which if we go in that direction is so-called carbon-free power. We're going to spend a lot of money that we could create a lot more power with wind and solar mm-hmm. and geothermal heating and cooling and so forth than by building expensive nuclear power plants that aren't clean anyway with all the waste they create, let alone the danger of a catastrophic accident. Mm. And finally, they, you know, we said to have the resources, not just money and physical plant, but the technological know-how in people's heads of engineers and economists, we need to reorder our priorities from military spending to this Green New Deal to defeat climate change. And they say nothing about military spending in that Green New Deal. So Mm. we are in the race to try to keep the standard for the Green New Deal high and adequate to what the climate science says we need to do. Mm. Do you see the Paris Agreement as an agreement that is in line with what is needed to preserve human civilization? Because it's been spoken a lot by Democrats as something, well, this is something that I would do when I'm elected. What do we know about the Paris Agreement and how does it compare to what what you perceive that we need? Well, I go by the carbon budgets that the best climate scientists have done. And what the Paris Climate Agreement came up with is what they've been talking about since around 2008 in these climate summits. And that is a goal of keeping temperature rise to two degrees, which they say would happen if we limited atmospheric carbon equivalents to 450 parts per million. And right about that time, Mm -hmm. James Hansen here and Kevin Anderson in the UK and a German group and Australian group said, no, 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 no. You look at the climate budget and what the carbon is doing to heat up the atmosphere, we got to stay below 350 parts per million. And that's when Bill McKibben, you know, jumped up and started 350.org, and that became the goal. Hmm. So Paris is 10 years behind the climate science at best. And even when they talk Mm -hmm. about 1.5 degrees as an aspiration, the numbers they're talking about, you know, cutting emissions by 45% by 2030 and 100% by 2050, you look at the science and the scenarios with the carbon budgets, The problem with the Paris Climate Summit and these UN forums is that you've got petrostates and the big carbon producers or emitters who are resisting and holding back what needs to be done. So it's everybody from the Gulf autocracies to the U.S. under both Obama and Trump. Well, Trump just pulled out, but Obama and before him, Bush and before him, Clinton and Gore always were watering down what was being talked about. You know, Russia... I mean, Putin is a climate denier, too. He's got he just launched a floating nuclear power plant that they're going to put into Arctic to power an expansion of Arctic drilling, the first of seven such floating nukes. Uh, China's 700 coal plants along Mm -hmm. its Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, we're we're in deep trouble. And so what we get from these international forums are compromises that are not adequate to the task we're facing. So I pretty much ignore them. And when the politicians say they're going for that, they're saying they're not really going to try to solve the climate crisis. So generally, uh, what, what you're what you're kind of saying is that both domestically and internationally, 
uh, we're letting the center take away necessary provisions in our climate legislation to make them less effective. And that, that needs to stop. Yeah. And it's, it's, you can say the political center, but the political center is bought and owned by the fossil fuel industry. Mm -hmm. Of course. And that's who's really calling the shots. Yes. Well, that's why the green party's out here. We won't take that money. And we're against both parties because they're bought lock, stock and barrel by industries like the fossil fuel industry, but others too. I think that we see that similar problem with political inertia in Fight for 15. People were campaigning for a $15 minimum wage six or seven years ago, and now you're seeing legislation like that start to pass. But the problem is that inflation has bumped up in those last years. So that $15 rate that was considered progressive a few years ago is barely even adequate now. And, and even then, the, the legislation is phasing in a $15 minimum wage over the next four or five years to the point where, you know, the difference isn't going even going to matter in terms of cost of living and in terms of, yeah, inflation. And I saw on your website, you were pushing for a, a $20 an hour minimum wage. Index to the cost of living and productivity. Yeah, of course. Mm. Yeah, Because, I mean, we've, we've all seen the, the kinds of graphs. And if you haven't, you can look this up, that since 1970, real wages have been stagnant, but, pro but productivity has been skyrocketing. Exactly. So how do you, as an activist, because, I mean, you've been doing this since you were a kid, how do you combat that political inertia of kind of always being ahead of what people want? Do you see that as a victory in and of itself, or does it frustrate you? Well, it frustrates me. You know, I, as a kid, could see that the Democrats and Republicans, for me, it was 1964. Uh, Ronald Reagan, who was then just mm -hmm. an actor, led the Democratic Party's uh, referendum effort to repeal the fair housing law that had just passed in California, and mm -hmm. they were successful in repealing it. So I looked at the Democrats, and they could have sat the Freedom Democrats from Mississippi. Instead, they sat the segregationist Dixiecrats. Mm. So I asked, where's my party? And, you know, it's real simple. If you're not for civil rights, you're not on my, you know, you're not on my side. And then, mm. of course, both parties escalated in Vietnam. And I eventually was drafted for that war. So yeah. I was a young man, but I'm an even angrier old man now because <laughs> that movement in the 60s, you know, it largely went into the Democratic Party hoping for incremental reforms. And we really haven't got anything since the great society reforms and the regulatory reforms like the EPA and OSHA we got under Nixon. And I believe that's because we don't have a left. We don't have an independent left. Oh, definitely. That goes into the Democratic Party, loses its voice. It tries to do what I call political ventriloquism. It tries to get the liberal Democrats to do and say what they want. And of course, because there are no threat to take their vote somewhere else, the liberals can take them for granted and uh, go along with the center. The left has no leverage. Right. It has no leverage inside the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. It has a little bit, but I, I would say to the, you know, Justice Democrats and the DSA, Democratic Social of America people working in the Democratic Party and the, the Sanders people that you need us on the outside. It gives you leverage on the inside. Unfortunately, they tend to punch down into their left. They're more worried about us than, say, voter suppression. Because as Cory Booker actually pointed out in the last debate, that's why Clinton lost Michigan. It wasn't Jill Stein. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Much bigger numbers of black folks that were, you know, their vote was suppressed. Detroit yes. vote was way down. I mean, just, just nationally, I think in 47 states did not vote one. Yeah. Howie, if I may. Um, so I, I understand that definitely it's, as you've expressed, kind of frustrating to some extent. And definitely, I think, you know, as kind of 
somewhat far leftists on this podcast, at least compared to the American standard, especially. Um, we, we, we all kind of feel that, you know, all of us who are in these circles. But I want, I'm curious, does it feel good in a way to see at least these sort of Green Party concepts thrust into the mainstream somewhat? Because I definitely remember as a child, you know, always hearing about the Green Party, talking about things like cleaning up industry and stuff, but it wasn't taken seriously at all. And now at least people are talking about it like it's a real issue. So do you think that's something's changing for the better? I think the public has moved to the left. And it was always to the left of the Democrats and Republicans. If you look at public opinion polling on economic class issues, like should the government be the employer of last resort, public jobs for the unemployed? Should we have Medicare for all? Should mm -hmm. we have a minimum wage that is a living wage? Should Social Security be raised, actually? Mm -hmm. Questions like that. The people that have been there, just, you can trace the polling back to the New Deal era, you know, Roosevelt and Truman. So they've always been with us on those issues. And I think on social issues, you know, social rights and justice, the public is much more liberal than it was, say, in the Nixon era. I mean, we had the white backlash in the 60s, and Nixon ran the Southern strategy. He ran it better than Trump does. He's a lot smarter than Trump. But it was very racist, and it was, you know, playing upon white people's fears. I think today, if you look at where people's attitudes are on racial questions, there's a broader spectrum of the American people who are for racial equality. Look at how the public opinion moved on gay rights, mm -hmm. I mean, on gay marriage. In right. 10 years, public totally flipped. Their attitudes about mass incarceration and so-called law and order and policing. Banned. Back in the 90s, the liberals were, you know, Clinton. Yeah, it was the Clinton administration that implemented three strikes laws and other mass right. incarceration laws. And, and most of the liberals, you know, even Bernie Sanders voted for that. Now he says it because they had an assault rifle ban. That's true. But, man, I can tell you, talking to liberal Democrats here in New York, uh, they were for the death penalty. They were for cracking down on welfare recipients. I mean, it was a very conservative period. So I think the public has moved. And that's why I, you know, we say we're on the far left, but we're actually pretty close to the mainstream of American people. I think the difference is those of us who are socialists realize that the, you know, social programs we'd like to see, like a job guarantee or Medicare for all, are not secure until we basically expropriate the billionaire class that Bernie Sanders talks about. Mm -hmm. His program is basically neoliberalism. He wants to tax the billionaires to fund these programs. The problem is the concentrated economic power those billionaires have translates into concentrated political power. Right. So that you may remember they called it the plutocracy study a few years ago where some political scientists looked at about 1,800 issues before Congress and compared what the top 10% of the public wanted and the median voter wanted. And in almost every case where there was conflict, the elite won. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem of American politics. Public opinion doesn't translate into public policy. And to me, that goes back to the fact that we don't have an independent party on the left that can speak directly to the people, speak for itself, has its own identity, people can recognize it, instead of it getting lost in the quagmire of the Democratic Party, where mm -hmm. a neoliberal like uh, Kamala Harris or Cory Booker, it's hard for the average voter who's not paying real close attention to see how they're really that different from, say, Elizabeth Warren. Yeah. Yeah. Or even yourself, honestly. I like I think a lot of people don't necessarily like uh, the part of kind of what we're trying to get at to some extent here is to get you to sort of reveal the nuance of the party a little bit so that people see that, you know, the Justice Democrats aren't necessarily enough by themselves and that we do need some other political forces, you know? 
Right. We don't want people to leave with the impression, oh, Howie Hawkins, he sounds nice. And you do sound nice. But we also want to give people uh, a sense of what they can do in terms of organizing to help the priorities that you are talking about become urgent realities. Oh, absolutely. Just kind of as a question, um, we've talked a lot about how policies that the Green Party advocated for have slowly been moving into the more kind of mainstream, as you talked about shifting public opinion. What are some things that are still kind of on the fringes that the Green Party is pushing for policies that you really want to see moved into the more kind of mainstream that aren't being talked about right now? Well, the eco-socialist approach we take to the economy, and as I explained before, why that's necessary for political democracy. Mm. And that's the part where, you know, people want jobs, they want health care. But I think most people don't understand that you can't get those programs passed and secured from the plutocracy unless we socialize a significant portion of that wealth. In other words, democratize it. So we need socialist economic democracy, social ownership and democratic administration of major means of production. So the center of power in society is in the hands of the people. And I think the people will make the right decisions. They want to make sure we all have our basic needs met, and they don't want to destroy the environment. They don't want to go to war. These are things the elites impose on us. So I think that's the key thing, the the socialist alternative, which is, you know, we've had a lot of people in the Democratic Party now calling themselves socialists, but they're, they're not talking about what classically socialism talked about, which is social ownership and democratic administration of the economy. It's uh, let's have Medicare for all. Mm-hmm. So you socialize the insurance, you leave the delivery private, and uh, you tax the rich to pay for it. The rich are going to fight back. Mm-hmm. We need to have everybody on a more level playing field politically. And that can you can go back and read the founding documents. They understood it real well. Read the Federalist Papers. You know, if you're going to have political equality, you've got to have a rough equality of wealth. And of course, in the Federalist Papers, that's exactly what some of them were worried about. And that's why they said this solution, you know, which divides powers and has this aristocratic Senate and so forth, is why we should have that constitution. I believe it was Jefferson who said government is instituted to protect the minority of the opulent from the tyranny of the majority of the of the poor. But yes, uh, speaking of, you know, um, billionaires have a lot of political power as, you know, under capitalist, quote unquote, democracy, wealth is power. And the more wealth you have, the more power you have. How can people be activists? How can people resist the power that the billionaires have and, you know, move more towards an eco-socialist reality? Well, traditionally, the socialist movement has sat on a three-legged stool, the co-ops, You can set up co-ops, consumer co-ops, worker co-ops, where you're not exploited. The trade unions, where you organize to defend yourself at work. And our own political party. And I think that's been the missing piece in American politics. We almost got there with Debs' Socialist Party. Mm. It was on its way. But uh, for various reasons, uh, we lost that. And since the 30s, a lot of the left has been trying to make change through the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. So I think... People who are serious need to get organized into an independent left party. We're trying to do that with the Green Party. And that's one of the major purposes of my campaign. I like to say, because I think it's true, the Green Party exists more because we're needed than because we organized it. Uh, A lot of people get frustrated. You know, they fight for $15 an hour or they fight a, you know, frack gas pipeline. Or they fight to stop a war and they find out the Democrats are on the other side. And so then they come to the Greens or they run as a Green. And Green Party people around the country tend to be good activists. We show up. We're reliable. But we're not 
very good organizers. There are skills to organizing that a union organizer learns or a community organizer learns. How do you go out to communities that are not part of your movement and engage them? You know, the left has to go there with a pamphlet or a leaflet and go there as missionaries. Here's the answer for you. An organizer goes in and says, what's your problems? What are your issues? Tell me what's mm-hmm. going on and listens and builds relationships right. and maybe helps them do their stuff for a while before they even tell them what you want to do as an organizer. Mm-hmm. Once you got that relationship, you can, you know, get support. You can even argue over stuff without it, you know, hurting the relationship because you trust each other. Yeah. Th- that's the kind of things that we need to do as, as Greens building the party organization. So what we're trying to do in this campaign is, first of all, we need ballot lines. This country has the most difficult ballot access of any electoral democracy in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we just saw in Moscow, where they use petitions to knock people off the ballot that Putin, you know, side didn't like. Man, that's old school in the United States. I've been through that many, many times. Mm-hmm. And just to take, you know, running for Congress, for example, in New York, you need 3,500 signatures in six weeks, which really means 7,000. Big job. In Illinois, it's 17,000. In Georgia, I think it's 16,000. If you want to run for the House of Commons in the United Kingdom, it's 25 signatures. Wow. Jesus. I, I didn't know that. Yeah, I actually did not know that. I think part of the voter suppression is the party suppression. You know, yeah. the biggest reason why Trump won is that a lot of people who voted for Obama couldn't stand Clinton or Trump and stayed home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I said, did not vote one. Yeah. We did have Jill Stein out there, but nobody knew about it because it was very hard to get on the ballot. The campaign was mostly about getting on the ballot. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to get on a ballot earlier this year. We can do it in up to 40 states. And then the last 10 states we have to do next year. And that will enable us, you know, I'm not going to be the next president. We can make a difference. We can build a party, get some issues raised. But we won't have a president taken seriously till we have a Green Caucus in Congress. Mm-hmm. And the way we're going to get there is by electing thousands of people to local offices and then state legislatures in Congress. You know, we got to really step it up and do that in the 2020s because we're running out of time on climate change, on this new nuclear arms race. Yes. I mean, people don't see inequality as a life or death issue, too, because we now have a life expectancy gap of 20 years between our richest counties and our poorest. Yeah. So organizing is ballot access. And then later in the campaign, we hope to organize regional trainings over weekends where Hmm. green organizers can come or green aspiring organizers, activists can come and uh, learn from experienced organizers some of the things like I was just talking about. So they can go back and uh, organize, you know, really broad-based Green Party locals. And I think the future of the Green Party is in the working class, the youth, and the people of color who vote in lower numbers. And you talk to those folks, it's not because they're apathetic, it's more because they're alienated. They don't think the two-party politicians know what they're going through, care about them, can even see them. Yes. And that's where a Green Party operating below the radar of, you know, MSNBC, CNN, Fox and all that, just talking to people on the streets, in the neighborhoods, at work. That's where we build it. So if people want to get involved, I mean, my campaign, you can go to the website, HowieHawkins.us. You can sign up to get emails. You can volunteer and we're going to put you to work and we need you to donate. But if you volunteer, uh, we're going to put you to work. And and the immediate thing is we need to build lists. We need to know a lot of times we go out, we hand a leaflet and we think that's it. No, you get the person's name and then you continue communicating with them. Right. That's a part of organizing that uh, Mm -hmm. it's not just the Green Party. It's really uh, endemic on the progressive side of politics. You know, everybody kind of looks at their computer and waits for the next instruction from moveon.org. Mm-hmm. 
there are staffs that are funded by, in the end, billionaires or very rich people through foundations or directly. Yeah. And the staff sits around a table and decides what the next move is. And then they send out an email email to us. We yeah. had no role in setting that. And uh, if we're going to have a movement that takes power, we've got to be skilled at organizing and running things. Mm-hmm. And I think we learned that in local party organizations. Hmm. And that's been missing in this country. You know, every other country, industrial country, had a labor party of some kind mm. and a mass party, and people paid dues to support it. You know, I've been pushing the Green Party to get back to dues. We had them in the 80s and 90s. We got away from them. That's a whole other story. But we basically defunded ourselves. And if we can't have a minimal staff at the national level, when people call up and say, I want to start a Green Party, and all we can do is refer them to any contacts we have in the state. We don't have any resources or organizers we can send to them. Wow. We should be able to do that. And so that's... Those are the kind of things I hope we come out of this campaign able to do. Sounds like a really great vision, honestly. That's a fantastic approach. One that's you know, it's it's it seems kind of well reasoned. Like you you know you admit that you're not going to win this cycle, but what you what you can do is kind of build the party. There, there's kind of this myth that um that third parties only focus on the presidential election and don't really uh, don't really angle towards. Um, lower ballot spots too much and i mean you know you you yourself can can speak against that because you, you've ran some 24 times for non-presidential elections before yeah that was never my plan but the greens keep asking me to run <laughs> i even lose a lot of votes you know in, in state committee meetings and local meetings and then they turn around and say run and you know we build up support through those campaigns over the years so what was the question Oh, the question was, you know, why you run for president? Why don't you run for local office? That's the question we get. Mm-hmm. And the answer is we need to get ballot lines so we can run for local office. And about 40 of the states, the vote or the petition to get on a ballot matters whether you're going to have a ballot line for the next election cycle. Yes. That's why I said the first thing we're doing is getting ballot lines. And that's not so I can be president. It's so we can run greens in these local offices mm-hmm. and start electing thousands of them. There's half a million elected offices in this country. Most of them are local. The greens have about 150 now. We've almost got up to 300 at one point. Mm-hmm. We should be having thousands elected. And that creates a bench and a platform for getting into the state legislatures and Congress. So that's you know the uh, important purpose of the Green Party running a presidential candidate. So on the subject of building the Green Party, um, something amazing about you is that you were actually part of the founding of the Green Party in 1984. And I'm curious, how do you feel the Green Party has sort of come along? Do you feel that it's sort of met your expectations, that it's let you down in some ways, or that it's exceeded? And do you kind of think that now is the Green Party's time with that perspective? Yeah, I would say I had higher expectations at the time, but Thinking back to that first meeting, I mean, the people there were all over the map in terms of their politics and their strategies. Mm. And it took a long time to sort out. And through that period, that was the 80s when a lot of the left, in fact, most of the left that still hadn't gone into the Democratic Party went in with Jesse Jackson and his Rainbow Coalition. And we were swimming against the stream at that time. And then the 90s, which was a very conservative period, even though there was a Democratic president, as we were talking about earlier, very conservative yeah. And uh, but there was a lot of effort, particularly during the latter part, you know, after Reagan, there was Bush. So there was a feminist majority folks, you know, Eleanor Smeal and them were thinking about starting a 21st century party with a feminist perspective. But they folded that when Clinton got elected. There was what was then called the new party is today the Working Families Party. But they're really inside the Democratic Party. 
mm-hmm. the executive director of the Rainbow Coalition, who goes back to the National Black Political Assembly in Gary, Indiana in 1972, Ron Daniels, tried to run an independent Black-based campaign in 1992 uh, called the Campaign for a New Tomorrow. And probably the strongest effort was the Labor Party, led by Tony Mazaki out of the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers. Hmm. And so we had a lot of competition in the 90s, but we survived. And I think we survived mostly because we're needed, like I was talking about before. So where are we today? I think we're in a good position. There's a lot of potential because as we were talking about public opinion, particularly on the social issues, has moved to the left. It was already there on the economic class issues. And there's a lot of disgust with the two parties. You can see that in the polls. You know, just the abstentionism is a reflection of that. I think our message is well received when people hear it. And this whole discussion, and Bernie Sanders gets some of the credit for this. I think the far right does when they were labeling Obama socialist. And a lot of people are saying, well, I like Obama. If he's a socialist, maybe I am. (laughs) Yeah. I think it's now on the table for discussion in a lot of parts of the country, which is good. Getting it discussed. I mean, back in the 50s, it was a conversation stopper. Mm-hmm. Today, it's a conversation starter, which gives us uh, an opening to talk about real alternatives to you know, this capitalism that is consuming the planet and not bringing home the bacon for most people. So I think there's always potential in any juncture. But I see a lot of potential now, uh, given what I just described. So, but I, the, you know, to me, the key thing is, The left has to declare its political independence, its class independence from the corporate parties and start organizing and running people. And, you know, in local races, a lot of them are uncontested. And then because of gerrymandering, most districts are one party districts. They're either mostly Republican or mostly Democrats. So if it's a Republican district, the Democrats don't bother running serious candidates and vice versa. So the Greens can run serious candidates and immediately become the second party, whether you're talking about rural red America or urban blue America. And once you're the second party, you're the opposition, you're in the conversation, and you can start winning people over. So I think there are enormous opportunities there, and it's a lot more direct. You you stay in the elections right till November. The people that are running these primaries in the Democratic Party, if they don't win them, then what? If they don't endorse the corporate Democrat that won, they sort of lose their ability to work within the Democratic Party because they'll be shunned and ex- you know excluded from stuff. So they tend to fall in line and end up supporting what they started out to oppose. So- you know, to sum it up, I would say if people are serious, they need to declare their political independence. Mm. Yeah, yeah, totally. As we've been saying with sort of the um, the moving of social issues to the left and the class issues being also on the left in public perception, uh, one party that's definitely, and you've name dropped before, the Democratic Socialists of America has definitely been seeing an upswell in, in kind of members and buzz around them. And they're definitely, a lot of their electoral strategy is wrapped up in sort of using the Democratic Party as entryism, as a vehicle to shift the conversation left to a point where the Demo- to, to a point where the DSA can start running candidates on their own. Just kind of, if you could, uh, what are your thoughts about the DSA and what are your thoughts about their strategy of using the, of using the Democratic Party as a vehicle to move politics left? Well, as we discussed, I don't think it's a good strategy. I understand that within DSA, there's one school that and this is the old school, going back to Michael Harrington, they want to take over the Democratic Party. I think most people in DSA think we're never going to be able to do that. They understand it's a corporate power structure. And so there's a lot of people that believe in what's sometimes called the dirty break. You know, we build up our forces and there'll be a split down the road and we'll have an independent Mm -hmm. workers party. I've been hearing that since the 60s. And there have been a lot of people who talked about that. And then there are people that are for independent political action. 
and I've, you know, been engaging with some DSA people as an institution. I've not had good luck with them. You know, New York Party, I, you know, approached them when I ran for governor last year for the Green Party, and uh, they ended up endorsing Cynthia Nixon, who was a Clinton Democrat, maxed out for Hillary, supported her in the primary against Bernie. We can go into it if you want. I don't think represented progressive politics very well in New York. She, you know, really screwed up on some things like single-payer health care when she told the Daily News. When I asked her how you're going to pay for it, she said, well, we'll pass it and then figure that out, which is not what the movement was saying, and it just... It hurt us. She got attacked from everybody from the New York Times to the National Review for that. But anyway, um, when she lost, I went back to them and they debated. They had a vote on whether to discuss whether to endorse me and my running mate, Gia Lee, rather than discuss whether to endorse me, which seemed like a bureaucratic move. And it, mm. I think it was a pretty close vote. But, you know, we lost mm. some local chapters in New York. You know, they did at least ask for a questionnaire or a video presentation. But my own local right here in Syracuse didn't even respond when we asked. Uh, you know, every chapter is different. I think they're more campus and suburban based than city based, which the Green Party here is. But I'm open to talking with them. I'm, I may be speaking to a group in California, a DSA chapter in California mm-hmm. uh, out mm-hmm. there next month. And, you know, they'll be sponsoring an event by me, a Green Party candidate for, pre- uh, for president. So I think that's something the Greens and DSA should be talking mm-hmm probably more at the grassroots level than at the formal level at the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Particularly because the Green Party top is pretty incoherent. You know, I, it's hard to say who really speaks for us. And uh, Brandon, you're uh, you're a member of the DSA and you recently uh, went to their uh, kind of national convention. Uh, wh- wh- what do you think about what uh, Howie is saying about the about the DSA and their strategy? Well, they yell at me if I if I discuss internal DSA politics too much on social media, mm-hmm. which I kind of is. But I don't think that there's a lot of argument that the DSA is very much into entryism and there is a long history of entryism not working properly. I think we saw this recent kerfuffle in New York with missing votes. We've seen that also reflected in my own state of Georgia. There is such widespread voter suppression. And when we talk about voter suppression, it's not exclusively something that exists on the right. Voter suppression also exists in softer forms on the left. I think that people in the DSA, um, they tend to underestimate the amount of resistance that they're going to get from the mainstream Democratic Party as they advocate for social change. Mm. Mm. So, Howie, something I've noticed about you is that in your speeches, um, or whether it's in your articles on Counterpunch, your Twitter feed, or even your appearance here, you seem somewhat more willing to just kind of speak your mind and say what you really feel about all of these political issues than kind of some of the green candidates in the past. Personally, I definitely see that as an advantage. Do you think that the Green Party kind of needs to take the knives out to some extent, you know, kind of get, play a little rougher in terms of not just sort of bowing to political civility at all times? Well, I'm I'm actually known as a pretty civil candidate. I mean, when I get in races, uh, you know, the other candidates, they don't mind debating me because I don't get ad hominem and I talk about policy. But on the other hand, I don't pull punches when I talk about policy and what we need to do. So I'm not sure civility versus, I don't know what the opposite is, is would characterize what I'm doing. But in terms of speaking bluntly as to what we need to do, yeah, I've always done that. That's all I know how to do. I think voters respect that. I get a lot of votes from far right people who don't like the mealy-mouthed Republicans or Democrats. And they say, Howie, I don't agree with you, but I know where you're coming from. And I respect you for you know, standing up what you're doing. I'm going to vote for you. Mm-hmm. 
you know, a lot of people vote 90% guts and, well, the political psychologist will tell you it's 90% guts and 10% brains. Yeah. It, you go on a feeling, is this person for the people? Are they you totally. know, going to look out for people like me? And I think if you're honest and, you know, straight, plain speaking about what you think we need to do, people may not, they may not be policy wonks, but they get a sense that uh, you know what you're talking about and you care. And I think that's probably the most important thing. Totally. And that's exactly what we've been trying to structure our show around. You kind of captured it really succinctly. <laughs> yeah, that is true. Actually, it, it, this is kind of the, the nature of the show is looking at that 90% instead of the 10% that tends to get focused on a lot more, even though, like you say, it's kind of the smaller factor. And I, I did definitely did not mean to imply that you're uh, uncivil in the sense of like you're very eloquent and very you seem very very nice. Of course. I just mean it in the political sense of there's there's sort of been this political civility that is supposed to be upheld and uh to me the way that you talk about political issues you're sort of against that and I think that's a good thing. Okay. I I I I hear you. I just think we need another word. I'm civil. Yeah. <laughs> And that's just the word that the media tends to use to describe this type of conversation or, you know, this sort of structure around these conversations, which I think is really important. I think the structure around these conversations is as important as the content sometimes, which is something that you've kind of touched on a lot of different ways in this conversation here. Yeah, yeah. So, Howie, it's been an incredible interview. You've been a wonderful guest. I want to thank you so much for joining us. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks yeah. for having me. Absolutely. So before you go, you've already touched on this a little bit, but I just kind of want to get into just a tiny bit more of if someone is really, really convinced that they have to vote, quote unquote, defensively, this is a term I'm seeing a lot this cycle, voting defensively in 2020 by voting for any Democrat against Trump, but they still want to help the Green Party. What are the best ways they could get involved like right now today? They can donate to my campaign so that the issues we're raising get discussed. And if they think they have to vote for the lesser evil, maybe we'll reduce the evilism that they're accepting. We move the debate. And, you know, you can you can go out there and help us get votes. I think it depends on the state. I, you know, if you're in a state where it's clear which side is going to win, you know, a vote for the Greens is a vote to get us a ballot line. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a vote telling the public and the media that you support our policy platform. And that, I think, is... Uh, well, you talked about voting defensively. Sometimes you got to vote offensively. You got to vote for what you want. Yeah. Not against the greatest evil. Now, in a close state, you know, look, people are going to make up their own minds. I don't need to tell them what to do. But there's still a lot they can do to help strengthen an independent left outside the Democratic Party that will keep, if their lesser evil gets elected, keep them a little bit honest and uh, moving our way because they're worried we might take votes for them in the future. Yeah. But I'm not sure how much... Democrats are defending us from Trumpism. Hmm. You know, if they really wanted Trump, they could have impeached him by now. Yeah. If they really wanted to fight Trumpism, the last administration would have indicted those predatory racist bankers who are now in the Trump administration running departments. Steve yeah. Mnuchin, one of the biggest predatory lenders and foreclosers in the country. Wilbur Ross, who was at the center of the, that robo-signing signing scandal that literally stole people's homes with fraudulent documents. And Holder mm. said, they're mm. too big to jail, basically. That's the way it was characterized, what he said. They're too big to jail, so they didn't. 
And then you got the war criminals returning. Elliot Abrams and John Bolton and uh, Eric Prince, who's not formally in the administration, but he's he's there. And you know what the Obama administration says? We're not going to look back. So there were people torturing people against our laws, against international laws. And they are now back in the administration. And the only guy that really got nailed for that was John Kirikow, mm-hmm. a CIA person who exposed waterboarding. Right. And because he did that, he went to jail. So that is, that's your Democrats for you. They're not defending us from the far right. They're accommodating. Yeah. So I would argue with folks that you really want to vote defensively, vote for what you want. Yeah. And make the politicians come to you. That is incredibly well put, I must say. One last question before we go. Um, on this podcast, we, we like to be kind of positive. We like to be hopeful. And so just kind of, you know, shortly, uh, say somehow by some sort of stroke of luck, you became president and you were able to enact your agenda. What does a Hawkins America look like? Well, I just uh, sent out an op-ed. I said on day one, I would declare a climate emergency. And I'll tell you what I do on day one. I would start steps to create an office of climate mobilization analogous to the office of war mobilization during World War II, which took over or built a quarter of manufacturing capacity in the United States to turn industry on a dime into the arsenal of democracy to defeat the fascist Axis powers. We need to do nothing less to defeat climate change. As a climate emergency, we could do a number of things without having to go to Congress. For example, let's change FERC the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is captured by the fossil fuel industry, into the Federal Renewable Energy Commission with a mission of enabling the fastest possible transition to 100% clean energy. And the part of the Green New Deal that sometimes gets lost, it, it, the good thing about what uh, AOC and the Democrats did is they kept this in. And that's the Economic Bill of Rights, the right to a job, income above poverty, decent home, comprehensive health care, a good public education from cradle to grave, and a secure retirement. I would call on Congress, like FDR did in his last two State of the Union addresses, to enact an Economic Bill of Rights programs for mm-hmm. each of those rights. And that, on day one, besides, and I'd, I'd repeal a whole lot of EOs, executive orders that Trump wrote. I would restore the federal consent decrees for the police departments in Ferguson and Baltimore that the uh, Trump administration got rid of. Man, I have a busy first day. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely sounds like that. Yeah, and we keep going like that every day. Amazing. And you've got the work ethic. You've got the more of a work ethic than most of the people running for president. So I know when you get up, you're going to get there on time. And stuff's going to get done. Yeah, the only time I've been on a golf course is as a caddy when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Howie Hawkins, uh, again, it was great to have you on. Howie Hawkins running for, uh, running for president on the uh, Green Party ticket. The nomination, running for the nomination. Uh, nomination, I'm sorry, nomination. For the Green Party 2020 ticket, uh, an incredible political organizer, Howie Hawkins. It has been just a delight to have you here, honestly. Thank you. Well, I really enjoyed it. Uh, go to uh, his website at howiehawkins.us. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. Thank you so much for coming on. On that note, this is Not Safe for Wonks. Leia Rose. Brandon. I'm Kennedy Cooper. See ya. Bye-bye.